0: If you would please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, book of Titus chapter 1. Last Sunday we began studying the book of Titus and as I mentioned some people see Titus as sort of a miniature version of 1st Timothy. Um, Both epistles, both letters along with 2nd Timothy are put in the category of the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles, I think, are really important because they help us consider and answer the question, how do we pass the faith on to the next generation? And with the children that we have in our congregation, this is not a rhetorical question. And with the struggles that the church faces presently in this generation, it is not an abstract question. And with the seeming growing hostility to any type of faith, but particularly the Christian faith, it is an important question. One of the things that we saw last week in studying 1 Timothy and Titus is that context is important. We need to understand that this letter and all the other letters in the New Testament were pieces of correspondence. They are letters. We sort of dress them up and call them epistles, but they are letters. They're part of correspondence that was brought about by historical circumstances, either from the people who are receiving the letter or from the author, in this case Paul, and he's writing to Titus. Or it's from both. And this is important when we compare Titus with 1 Timothy because they are not in similar situations. Um, people say, yeah, but Titus is so much like 1 Timothy. In fact, except for uh, a few verses in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, uh, which are not found in 1 Timothy, it all seems to be just like the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. But this really ignores or neglects the fact that the occasion of the letter as well as the location to which it is sent really is important. Timothy was in Ephesus. Titus was in Crete. So, I mean for us it's the ancient world it's the Mediterranean world it's all the same thing. Well, Paul had spent a lot of time in Ephesus and he had appointed elders there and apparently they were the problem and so Titus or Timothy is sent to Ephesus to deal with the problem, and Paul writes him a letter saying, "This is what you need to do with regard to elders," and he gives the list of qualifications for elders. With Crete, Paul did not spend much time there; he sort of passed through. We don't know how long he was there, and he wants Titus to finish up the things to sort of t- uh, tie up the loose ends that Paul himself had not dealt with, including appointing elders. So that's why both letters deal with the issue of elders. But in one case, it is to correct the elders, and the other, it is to choose elders to appoint them and to instruct them. So Timothy's list is corrective, Titus's is instructive. But the lists are quite similar, one would argue. And I thought, well, why not? We're dealing with the same positions, elders and overseers in the local congregations. The, the occasion and purpose of this letter is found in verse number 5. If you look at verse number 5 of chapter 1, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So it would seem that Paul had traveled through, he had preached there, there were those who had become believers um, and had come together as congregations, but there was no leadership. And so Titus has been sent, it may in fact be that he was left behind, that he was with Paul, to in fact appoint elders So, Paul gives a list of qualifications for elders. The word in Greek, presbyteroi, from which we get Presbyterian, and overseers, episkopoi, from which we get Episcopalian. I think they are, in fact, interchangeable. Um, They aren't simply titles, um, but they are, in fact, descriptive. An elder refers to someone who has maturity, Whereas an overseer is someone who has managerial ability. He runs a household. He may, in fact, have children or slaves or workers. Um, The overseer is the one who takes care of these things. And I really want to point out that these aren't simply titles. And I don't mean to sit in judgment necessarily, but it's almost humorous when you see young men about 20, 21, 22, uh, going around seeking to spread the news of mormonism and their title is elder well then it is just a title it isn't descriptive they're not they're young men they should be called youngers not elders so when paul chooses this term it isn't just a fancy term he is in fact describing the type of men who are to be in this position i would mention briefly two Two matters in this regard. First of all, as I mentioned last week, beginning in the nineteenth century, people begin to question whether or not Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Um, in fact, what they believe is that it wasn't written until the second century and written by someone who was not Paul, he simply used Paul's name. Why would someone do that? I find it rather disturbing that a part of Scripture is in fact uh, a forgery, if you wish. I mentioned at the end of the sermon last week uh, a case from, I, I used to teach Vietnamese history, but one of the great, if not the greatest kings in Vietnamese history was a man named Li Patma, and he became king uh, 70 years after Vietnam got its independence from China, and he was a very charismatic leader, very dynamic leader, a great personality, and he reigned for 26 years. Well, he and his elders, or uh, counselors, if you wish, had this sort of running dispute, because they wanted him to set up a structure. They wanted a a bureaucracy of sorts, because whoever came after him might not be as charismatic, in fact, probably wouldn't be as charismatic, and they needed something that would be stable, even if the leadership wasn't dynamic. That's what was argued in the 19th century. Paul is charismatic, Paul is dynamic, the apostles are, but what happens when they die off? Well, you need to have structure. And so the church was going through rough times, so somebody in the second century said, I know, let's write some letters, supposedly from Paul, that will help us justify the structure that we are creating. Um, No. No. Scholars want, such scholars from the 19th century, want to hold out for a more organic vision of the church. They don't want the church to be seen as an institution or an organization, but rather they want to be seen as an organism. And I agree. I, I don't disagree at all. But even an organism has different parts, and some certain parts of the organism, in fact, give directions to the others as to what is to be done, even in a one celled um, amoeba. There is one part that sort of sends messages out saying these are the things that we are going to do. Um, I think there's almost a romantic notion here that they want to see church, the early church as leaderless and this this really hyper-egalitarianism and everyone just knew what to do and everyone was being led by the Spirit and they were all on the same page. Um, underneath it all, though, is a rejection of authority. And authority is, in fact, a part of the equation when it comes to God's people. Um... But this is something that people really have struggled with. If you have a church and it has leaders, then this would seem to challenge the whole organic notion of how the church is supposed to work, how God's family is supposed to be. And certainly if you look at the history of God's people, um, it is our tendency to look more to structure, uh, to look to organization rather than looking to the spirit For wisdom and for the unity of faith. And so the church, in many ways, has become overly structured, overly organized, and the Holy Spirit, in in essence, is sort of pushed aside, and we're going to take care of this on our own. In his novel, The Samurai, which was written by Shusaku Endo, who wrote Silence, which was made into a movie. Um, the Franciscan Friar uh, Velasco has traveled from Japan to Mexico to Spain, and finally he 's gone to the Vatican and He appeals to the Church to continue to send missionaries to Japan, even though there have there 's been persecution. He was a missionary in Japan he has brought with him some uh, officials from Japan, and he is the translator. And the Vatican has decided, no, we're not going to send any more missionaries because of persecution. Velasco makes argument after argument throughout the book. And finally, when he is in front of Cardinal Borghese, who is the Vatican spokesman. And finally, Borghese answers him and says, But we do not live in the age of the Lord and the apostles, my son. We run a massive organization. We have a responsibility to the Christian nations and their peoples. And as an organization, we have certain policies. Even if they seem cowardly and tainted to you, it is because of those policies that the organization is sustained. Order is preserved, and the faithful in the Christian nations can maintain their faith and confidence. Well, this is how many people view the church, capital C. And the, you know, it's, it's so organized, it's become more of an organization than a living organism. Let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let's not say, no, no elders, we don't need any type of leadership. Let's just all be on the same page by the Spirit of God. There is a place for structure. There is a danger with structure that we would put our confidence in it rather than in the Lord Jesus. I think I may have told you this, but when I was in Bible college many decades ago, I was taking a class called Sunday School Administration. Teach us how to organize our Sunday schools. And the professor related how a pastor friend of his had said to him, my Sunday school is so organized that we could run it for two years without the Holy Spirit. I suspect he probably had been doing it without the Holy Spirit for the past years or so. And that is the real danger of organization or structure. But the answer is not to get rid of structure. The answer is not to say, no, we don't want any elders. Because here we find in Titus... Uh, Paul gives a list of qualifications. As for the qualifications, the second thing that I would bring up by way of uh, review is I find it really striking what Paul does not include in his list. We can put them into one category, the things he does mention, and that is they deal with outward observable behavior. These are things you can look at a person because you can't look in their heart. And you shouldn't make a judgment, yeah, this person is mature, or this person has good understanding. You look at how they behave. The two subsets under that is how does he behave with his family? Is he faithful to his wife? Does he take care of his kids and his household? And the second is, how does he deal with other people? When he's in the house, which is private life, how does he act? When he is outside the house in his public life, how does he act? Twice, in both categories, the home life, the public life, the word blameless is mentioned. In verse 6, an elder must be blameless. In verse number 7, an overseer must be blameless. And I think we should take care that we don't understand this as being perfect. Paul is not saying these have to be perfect men. In the list in 1 Timothy 4, uh, Paul says above reproach. Ken mentioned after the service last week that when, when Paul writes blameless, the people of that time, they know what he means. I mean, they have a very clear picture in their mind of what he means. I, for us, I think we have to work our way back and figure out what it is. But he's not asking for perfection. But he's asking for leadership in the church that in their homes and in their public lives, they, in fact, are seen as blameless, generally speaking, by their families and by the people around them. So I said we should be struck by what Paul doesn't mention. He doesn't mention anything about their personalities about charisma, their speaking ability, are they dynamic, their personal appearance, um, and certainly nothing about celebrity. This is certainly a modern phenomenon. Choosing someone to be an elder in the church requires that we look for the qualities that reflect a grace-filled life. Not in our society, which is a consumer society. Um, We want celebrities. We want dynamic personalities. We want someone who will keep our attention. Having given the list, in verse number 9, he says that they, in fact, are to work to protect the people of God. Um, If you look at verse number 9, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Well, who are those who oppose it? Well, that's where we come to today. In verse number 10, he deals with false teachers. When we look at this passage, verses 10 to 16, and then there are two verses in chapter 3, these are the only indication, in fact, that there are false teachers. This isn't like 1 Timothy, where there's a major problem with false teaching going on. But there is some indication, I think we will see, um, that this is one of the reasons Paul writes this letter. It isn't just about leadership, but you need leadership to protect the congregation from these false teachers. Look at verse number 10, and that's where we'll begin. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. It starts with the word for, which means there's a connection. Okay, It ties it to the previous paragraph. And what it does in part is it gives us reasons why the elders are to be blameless, which is mentioned twice, and why they are to be able to teach and refute error. The problem is rebellious people. Interestingly enough, the word that is translated here as rebellious in verse number 6 is translated as disobedient. So what is it that they're rebellious against? Well, they have rejected the truth, as seen in verse number 14, they rejected the lordship of Jesus Christ as well as Paul's authority. But this rebellion is expressed, how do we know they're rebellious? In that they are mere talkers and deceivers. Okay? They like to talk in order to deceive. Mere talkers is mentioned also in First Timothy at the beginning of the book. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. Simply put, they're all talk. It's all talk. It is meaningless talk that is intended to deceive, to deceive others. In First and Second Timothy, Paul mentions people by name, men by name, who are false teachers. Um, here he simply refers to them as some people, specifically those of the circumcision group. By the way, the word especially there, I think for us has a different connotation. What he's saying is, in other words, you know, those who belong to the circumcision group. Now, this can be one of two groups of people. Either these are Jews, and circumcision is a sign of the covenant. Okay, And historical records, by the way, indicate that there was a significant Jewish population on Crete. I mean, from the beginning of the first century on, uh, a lot of Jews on Crete. But secondly, it could refer to, and I think it does, to Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. Now, There were two categories of Gentiles who would show up at synagogue. Those who converted and those who didn't but were sort of on the fringe. They're known as God-fearers. The difference between the two people is that the converts had been circumcised. They said, we want to be a part of the people of God. We will allow this to happen to us to show that we have the sign of the covenant. The god fears are like, yeah, we believe in God, but we don't want to do that. Uh, so we're going to come every you know, Sabbath uh, to synagogue. We're going to listen to scripture. We believe in God, the God of Israel, but we're not going to take that final step. I think it is this second group here, those who have converted, that Paul is talking about here, as we'll see in a few minutes, because he talks specifically about the people from Crete. What Paul writes in verse number 12, I think, will sort of help us here. Um, Verse number 11. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. The picture that emerges is one of a less than cohesive church structure. It seems that in every household where you have believers, you have teaching going on. Not necessarily a bad thing, unless you have people who are teaching the wrong thing. What you want, and I think most of the elders were probably the heads of household where the congregation would meet in their house, these are people who are supposed to be leaders. But at this point, that's not happening. You just have, if you wish, Bible studies happening all over the place. But you have some people who are teaching the wrong thing. They teach things they ought not to teach. And why would they do this? And this is where it really gets interesting. They do it for dishonest gain, the sake of dishonest gain. Um... It's really interesting. Uh, What did they do? Did they take up a collection? Did they take up an offering? Was something given because he was a teacher? Certainly in the the ancient world, uh, a man was not considered a professional teacher if he didn't get paid. And that's why Paul and the Corinthians went round and round. He wouldn't take their money. Well, who does something and doesn't get paid? They're an amateur. So, Paul, you're an amateur. So it seems that these false teachers are doing it for the sake of getting money. Two things to consider. First of all, this is something we find in 1 Timothy. This is a problem in Ephesus as well. The bottom line for these false teachers is, in fact, the bottom line. It's greed. They're doing this for the money they can make. They're religious mercenaries. But the second thing, and I mentioned this last week, in the qualifications that Paul gives to Titus for elders, they are not to pursue dishonest gain. If you look at verse number 7, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. This marks him as being quite different from these false teachers. Now verses 12 and 13. And let me just say before we read them, it seems inevitably when we're going verse by verse, there are certain verses I would rather skip over. These are those verses, okay? Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Paul's argument here takes a, a really surprising turn and one that I find a bit disturbing. The conduct of the false teachers is in fact in line with the reputations of the people of Crete in general. That just, in modern terms, we would say essentializing. You know, all Cretans are like this. This is what was said of them. What is fascinating to me is that this quote that Paul cites was from someone who lived over 600 years before. You know, one would hope, after six centuries, that the people from Crete had sort of gotten their act together. But in fact, he's quoting from Epimenides, who was around 600 B.C., and he described the people from Crete as always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. You might, in fact, see that there's a correspondence from what Paul says about the false teachers. Mere talkers and deceivers, that is, they are liars, rebellious people, evil brutes. For the sake of dishonest gain, they are gluttons. This quote from Paul has an interesting history. According to a well-established tradition found in the Hymn to Zeus, number 8, from around uh, 305 to 240 B.C. um, by Camalicus, and Lucian's Lover of Lies, which is from A.D., 120 to 180 A.D. The reason that it is said about the people of Crete that they are always liars is because they claim to have the tomb of Zeus on Crete. Well, Zeus is a god. And even from a Christian perspective, he's a false god, but gods don't die. So how can you say that you have the tomb of Zeus? You guys are just a bunch of liars. Well, why does Paul refer to Epimenides as one of their prophets? Well, Plato referred to him as a divine man. Aristotle said he used to divine not the future, but only the things that were past but obscure. Epimenides apparently was a brilliant man, and people saw the wisdom that he had, and so he could be put in the category of a prophet. And his word about the people from Crete is, yeah, they're a bunch of liars. Paul's not saying this is true of all the people in Crete, but the false teachers are living up to the reputation of the people of their island. So, therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. This is the only time in this letter that Titus is told to address the false teachers. Rebuke is the same word that is used in verse number 9 as refute. Speaking of the overseers, Paul writes, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Titus is called on to begin the process. He is to rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. This, I think, is important, and I'll mention at the end of the sermon. If these people are simply false teachers then just get rid of them. But I think, in fact, Paul sees them as believers who have gone off track. And when someone has gone off track in terms of their doctrine and their behavior, you could just excommunicate them and say, get out of here, you're not a Christian. Or you can, in fact, rebuke them and try to bring them back to the truth. And I think that's what Paul wants here. He doesn't see them as beyond hope. Yes, they are rebellious. Yes, they are mere talkers and deceivers. Titus wants, or Paul wants Titus to speak to them, to rebuke them, so that they will be sound in the faith. Verse 14, And will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. Verse 13 points to the positive, being sound in the faith. Verse 13 is the positive. Verse number 14 is the negative. Two aspects. Their false teaching is based on Jewish myths. We don't know what these myths were. Paul does. Titus does. I think the believers in Crete have heard them, so they have an idea of what they are. But what we know is that they were myths. They weren't true. They weren't from Scripture. But secondly, this seems to be a whole thing about control, about power. It's a power play. They want to command their listeners to do what they say. This should remind us of what Isaiah said and Jesus quoted it in Matthew 15. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. It's all about power. This is fleshed out in verses 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences have been corrupted. What they were telling people to do, their commands, I think probably had to do with certain prohibitions, things you're not supposed to do. Uh, food laws, are certain dietary restrictions, some of which come from the Old Testament, as well as the whole issue of defilement. You know, don't hang out with certain people um, Colossians 2 deals with this. Um, Paul wrote, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that are to come, or that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? And what are those rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. It seems that the false teachers, these Jewish converts who are believers, I'm convinced that they are believers, but they have gone off track in a sense, to assert their authority over the congregations that they are leading, they are, in fact, putting restrictions on them. They're saying, okay, folks, this is what I'm telling you. These are the rules. This is what you're supposed to do. And by the way, those of us who were raised in a particular area really struggled with the whole issue of legalism. And I remember Francis Schaefer talking about the fact that they, that people that came to Libri not only wanted to get rid of legalism they wanted to get rid of any authority altogether and oftentimes, what you find is that people who left a legalistic background ended up becoming far more legalistic than they could have ever been before it's all about power and that's what Paul is addressing here yes you are to have elders you are to have overseers there are to be leaders this is not about power this is not to be a power play Paul points out the reality that to those who are pure, those who are God's people, in contrast to the false teachers, you know, everything is pure. But to those who are impure, they are corrupted, their minds and their consciences both. Verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is the harshest condemnation. They claim to know God. Paul doesn't say they don't know God. He says they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. The Jews and those who had converted to Judaism claim to know God. As Paul told the Romans, theirs is the adoption of sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. No other people in human history have been given this at this point. God has given the revelation of himself to the Jews. So one could say, if anyone knows God, it is the Jews. But it isn't a matter of head knowledge. It's not cognitive. It's to be seen in their behavior. And by their behavior, they're saying, we do not know God. You see, you have a people who have been given a law, the laws of God. And these laws say, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. And they sort of thump their chest saying, we have the laws of God. But then they end up doing what is wrong. So they are denying that they have any revelation from God, because if they know it's wrong, then why in fact are they doing these things? The accusation that they are disobedient, I think we can appreciate. But why does Paul say that they are detestable and unfit for doing anything good? Detestable is related to abominable, which is abomination, that which is detestable to God. But they are unqualified for any good work. And this is the distinction between the false teachers and the elders and the overseers that Paul wants Titus uh, to appoint as leadership, uh, leadership in the various congregations. Instead of following human commandments, they are to follow the law of God. And what the good works are, because these false teachers aren't doing these good works, what they are is spelled out in the rest of the book, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 2, almost to the end of chapter 3. Beginning in verse number 2 of chapter 2, Paul says, this is what Titus is to instruct the older men. This is how older believers, older men are to act. Older women who are believers, how they're to act. Younger men who are believers. Slaves who are believers. This is how they are to behave. These are their good works. But you may have noticed, I skipped a verse. And that's verse number one of chapter two. Paul says to Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. This is the pivot from the false teachers and their teachings to what Titus is supposed to do and what he is supposed to teach the older men, the older women, the young men and the slaves. I have in my notes here warning. We might be inclined to think that Paul is speaking of the cognitive side of the gospel, and I don't think he is. He's speaking of the behavioral side. And I say this in part because it is in contrast to the false teachers and their commands how you're supposed to behave. It isn't about, this is sound doctrine. Titus, you're supposed to instruct them in sound doctrine. Yes, he is. Sound doctrine is seen in how people behave. And the Lord willing, we'll see next week, what in fact he instructs them is how they're to behave. It's not a theological lesson as we would think of it in the normal sense, but it is in fact a lesson on how people are to behave. The false teachers say they know God, but in their actions they deny him. Titus, on the other hand, is to instruct people how they're supposed to live, how they're to behave in line with sound teaching. For many Christians, if not most, the view presented of the church is of the church versus the world, us versus them. The church being the good guys, the world being the bad guys. Um, And at some point, I think for people who are raised in the church, a crisis of uh, sorts may appear in which a person who believes the gospel finds that not every person in the world is bad and not every person in the church is good. And I can't help but wonder if this crisis of faith could have been avoided if they had been told that the danger to the church is not merely outside the church, but within the church itself. You say, well, wait a minute. If, if we tell our kids this, because remember the pastoral epistles, how to pass the faith on to the next generation. If we tell them that there's danger within the church, not simply out there, won't they become paranoid? I mean, won't they just be suspicious of everyone? Um, not necessarily. We need to tell our children, we need to remind ourselves that the church is made up of imperfect people. Many seem never to have been told this. Imperfect people are quite capable of behaving badly, of believing wrongly, and we as God's people are all capable of behaving badly and believing wrongly. That's one reason why we need each other to keep us behaving and believing as we should Um, at this point I want to blame Robert for what's about to come after this Um, Robert has really I I mentioned Simone Weil in in passing in a sermon earlier and since then I've been reading various things by her Simone Weil uh, W-E-I-L a French name and um, an amazing woman Uh, I think Albert Camus said she was one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. But she really had a problem with the church. She really had a problem with the church. Um, We think, we don't know, that she was secretly baptized shortly before her death. Um, She never received the Eucharist. She would not step inside a church. I don't think she was Jewish. She never went in a synagogue. And she had just this almost as paranoia about the church. And um, Stephen Plant, who has written sort of a condensed version of her works, um, writes this about the church. In the church, one learns the love of God, not simply from direct encounter with God's perfection in prayers, but also in loving imperfect human beings and being loved by them. Human beings who made mistakes, and who grow through them in order to love each other as God first loved them. Without participation in such a community, with the sharing of the messiness of relationships, not only with the church saints, but also its sinners, the way in which the narratives of God on each page of the Bible may become the word of God, may be lost on us. And he argued that it was lost on Simone Weil for all her brilliance, for all her brilliance, she just couldn't see that God's church is his purpose. Well, again, as I said at the beginning, a lot of scholars have said, yeah, Paul didn't write this. He didn't write First and Second Timothy or Titus. This is people later on who are trying to create a structure for the church, some organization. We want the church to be organic. We want it to be an organism. Absolutely. I don't disagree. But the reality is, even in an organism, there is someone who's calling the shots, who is informing, who is directing the rest of the organism. The danger is that we may put our faith in structure, in in organization, in leadership, rather than in God. But the answer is not, let's get rid of leadership. Let's just have this hyper-egalitarian, individualistic thing, and we'll all do our own thing. No. So Paul has left Titus behind to finish the work that Paul wasn't able to do because he had gone somewhere else and that begins by finding men who are blameless not perfect but who have a good reputation at the home in the home in their private lives and their public lives they're blameless and these are to be the people who protect the children of God they are not to not be questioned there's a time when there are to be questioned and I think that some of these people here, the false teachers, I think that they are leaders, they are elders in a certain way, but they've gone off track. Um, we are the people of God. We are the family of God. He knows best. He is called for leadership. But our faith is always to be in Him and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, your church has been around for centuries now and has seen its share of dark days and valleys. The times in which the church acts as though it does not need you. Certainly it acts as though it does not know you. It does whatever it wants. It just becomes a matter of power and control, telling people what to do. we reject that and we confess that it is wrong and ask for forgiveness as we said in the prayer of confession we and our fathers have sinned but may we not then go off on some romantic trip imagining a church that has no structure that has no leadership We live in a time of celebrity, even of celebrity pastors. And the temptation is to want to just jettison the whole lot. The reality is, you know all things. And even at our best, we don't get it right. But may we, by your grace, learn from Paul's letter to Titus. That, in fact, your family is to have structure. There are to be those who are to instruct and to protect the rest of the congregation. And that as we meet together, as we love each other, imperfect as we are, saints and sinners, we might grow. And in our actions, show the love of Christ. He who gave his life for us. Thank you for loving us. It is beyond comprehension that you do. But you've proven it by sending your Son and giving us your Spirit. Teach us your Word, Father. Today is the beginning of a new week. Ken starts a new job tomorrow, and we are grateful for that. Jesse's time of delivery draws near. Dan and Lonnie will be coming back. The Paschals will be going back east. You know what this week will bring. We look to you. We trust you. Watch over us, I pray. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence throughout the coming days. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.